All right, if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 39. So our text again is Psalm 39 tonight. Continuing our, our tradition of uh, during the month of July every year, um, uh, just focusing on the Psalms during that time. Um, next week, we're going to have a chance to listen to uh, James Stoltz um, come in and share with us from Psalm 34. 34. Um, and I did 33 last week. And so my, I, I was kind of thinking and I said, you know, we're just going to stay in the 30s. Let's we'll keep it in the 30s. You know, I don't know what will happen in the coming weeks after that, but, but we'll keep it in the 30s. So we're going to look at Psalm 39 tonight. An interesting Psalm, um, one that I decided to preach on for one reason. And then when I started getting into the study of the passage went, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going to preach on it in a whole different way. Okay. And so so you'll kind of see what I'm talking about in here in just a minute. So let me read the passage for us, Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress, distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open up your word, uh, we come to a, a difficult passage, um, a passage of emotional um, weight and depth. God, in a complicated passage. Um, God, we thank you for your word and and the testimony that it brings us about uh, God, first and foremost, you and your character, um, the salvation that you have wrought through us through Jesus Christ. But God, we thank you that at the same time, it shows us who we are. God, it plums the depths of our, our hearts and our souls and our emotions. 
God, it, it gives us insight into um, the predicament that we find ourselves in um, as as beings made in the image of God and yet who have fallen into sin. God, it gives us a picture of, of the the fragmented nature sometimes of our own thoughts and emotions. God, it shows us who we are and what we need. And so we thank you for that, God. We we thank you that we do not just rely on on the words of men um, to uh, to look into our own um, thoughts, um, to analyze our own um, God beliefs and our own emotions, um, but we can look to your word and have an objective source by which we uh, learn these things. God, we ask that as we open your word that you would shine a light on it, that you would shine uh, a light on our own hearts and minds. Um, God, that we would understand this clearly. Um, God, that you would use it, um, perhaps in different ways, um, to, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to make us more and more like him. Um, God, that we would put our hope and our trust in him, and that we would live in a, lot, in a, in a way that honors him. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, to, to kind of start off as an illustration, so I don't know about you guys, but I used to read these books when I was a kid. Um, and the ones that I re- read were, were um, they were actually put out by the same company that makes the Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, but they were functionally like the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Are you familiar with those, right? So you, you have a book, and basically what happens is you begin to read a story, and then you come to a certain part of the story, and then it asks you a question. Well, you want to go this way, or you want to go this way? And then turn to this page or turn to that page, and it would, it would tell you where to go. And the story would change, obviously, depending on which way you pick. And so you could read it one time through and get one story, and then you could read it through a second time and actually get a, a completely different kind of story from, from the book. And, and the reason I bring up the illustration of these choose-your-own-adventure books, because there's a sense in which this passage is like that, okay? This psalm is almost like a choose-your-own-adventure story because it has been vastly, it has been interpreted vastly different depending on who you ask at different times in church history, or really not even sometimes in the same time in church history, just by different people. So for example, um, John Calvin, right? Probably the, the greatest theologian, one of the greatest theologians of certainly the last thousand years, uh, one of the greatest theologians of all time, um, along with uh, John Gill, who that may not be a name that you're super familiar with, but John Gill was is probably the greatest Baptist theologian of all time, and a host of other people, a host of other commentators and theologians and pastors, um, see this passage revolving around David's sinful impenitence and complaint towards God, his impatience towards God, all right? While others, like Martin Luther, okay, another one of the greatest uh, theologians of all time, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, arguably, and a host of others take almost an opposite view of the passage, that David is actually responding to trying times in humility and in faithfulness, okay? So you recognize immediately that the very fact that, that biblically insightful godly men who have come to this passage have seen it in very different ways, okay? And part of the reason why that is the case is because of the nature of, of poetic literature in the Bible. So when we come to a book like the book of Psalms, um, we read it differently 
than we would uh, a narrative passage like one of the Gospels or the histories that we find in the Old Testament. We read it differently than we would um, a prophetic text. We read it differently than we would um, the law text that we find in the Old Testament, like in the books of uh, Deuteronomy or Numbers or Leviticus or something like that. We read it a little differently. And the reason is, is because oftentimes the, the language is, it's, it's, imaginary is not the right word. It's, it is, it is trying to paint a picture, okay? Um, oftentimes the, the emotional state or the perspective or the, or the posture of the person writing the, the, the psalm and the situation they were in colors it a certain way. But the problem is, is that we don't know the original situations most of the time, right? We don't know, we are told in the beginning of this that, that this is a psalm of David, okay? But we don't know at what point David wrote this. We don't know what he was going through. If this was a good time in his life, a bad time in his life, it's obviously a difficult time in his life. But so what I want to do is, is not only kind of explore the passage for what it would have to teach to us, but sort of demonstrate the fact that as we look at a text, and this is certainly not true of every psalm. Some are much more straightforward. But sometimes we come across one that we go, man, I'm, I'm a little bit torn between which direction to, to understand this passage, okay? And so each section relates to other sections in a different way, depending on which way you choose. So let's start at the beginning again. The psalmist, we presume David, says, he says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute. So that's sort of him saying, this is what I promised to myself. Then he says, I was mute. I was silent. I held my peace. The ESV says, but to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. All right. So David has resolved to keep his mouth shut. That's what we see in the beginning of this passage. He is under some kind of stress, some kind of uh, difficulty. We don't know the exact nature of that difficulty. Many commentators try to assign this this passage to some event that we see in the life of David in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Um, they try to guess what the context of him writing this was. But the problem with this with that is it's, it's exactly that. It's a guess. And there's a danger to guessing in that way that we should be aware of because we start reading the meaning of the psalm into the story that we don't know for sure is connected with it, okay? So we have to be careful with that. You'll find that a lot of times in Scripture, uh, the, the, the psalms that are about David repenting of sin, right? Oftentimes we'll say, oh, well, he wrote that uh, during the incident with Bathsheba or after the incident with Bathsheba. And the answer is, in some cases, well, maybe he did, and then... Maybe the case is, is maybe we don't know that, okay? Sometimes the, the biblical text will give us a little clue, um, but not always. So the first question I think we have to ask in this, this, this choose your own adventure, right? The first fork in the road we come to is who is David keeping, to whom is David keeping his mouth shut? David says, I promise not to say anything. Who is he not saying anything to? Is he not saying anything to the wicked who seem to be his persecutors? Or is he not saying anything to God? 
David is suffering something. Suffering has a tendency, as probably we all recognize, has a tendency to make us lash out with our words. It may be the case that David wants to lash out against his persecutors. He wants to justify himself and justify his own position. He wants to put them in their place. He wants to establish his own righteousness. We can think of a number of circumstances in which, in David's story, in which he would have been in a situation like that, right? Particularly in his interactions with King Saul. There's all these stories, right, where King Saul is treating David in an unkind, in a hateful, in an unjust way. And David, on multiple occasions, comes back to Saul and basically says, Saul, I haven't done anything to deserve the way that you're treating me. But there's also oftentimes the case where David says nothing and just goes about his business because he recognizes that pleading his case is not going to get him anywhere. And in fact, it might even end up making things worse. Another example of that would be Jesus before his accusers commits to say nothing. Oftentimes it's wise for us not to cast our pearls before swine. So that's one possibility, but here's the other possibility or at least one other possibility. The one whom David wants to call out to, but has decided to keep quiet to, the one who he wants to justify himself before, may be God. David is suffering at the hands of at the wicked, and maybe in a Job-like fashion, if you're familiar with the book of Job, he's essentially calling out, he wants to call out to God and say, God, this isn't fair. I don't know why you're putting me through these things. I don't know why I have to deal with this. If you really cared about me, you would do something about this suffering. The problem is exacerbated, too, by some little translation issues in, in the passage. It's hard to tell exactly what is that they're trying to get across. So, for example, most translations of this passage, most versions translate verse 2 something like this. I was mute and silent. I refuse to say even something good. But that's not the way the ESV, which is the Bible that we typically preach out of, it's not the way it puts it. What does it say? It says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. Okay, those are two very different ideas. Because the language, we're not sure exactly what he's trying to get across when he says it. Is he saying, I tried to hold my peace, but I couldn't. I had to say something. Or is it the case that he's basically saying, um, I decided to hold my peace, not even, not to say anything negative, but not even to say anything good. Okay. Well, depending on which one of those two it is, could lead us in different ways. It's difficult to decide between the two. One point would point us towards an accusation against the persecutors. The other would be potentially against God. But maybe we can say something in either case. We can pause to make a point that would apply to either one is this is we live in a cultural moment where we are obsessed with sharing our opinion about things. We're obsessed with having a voice about things. Everyone has to be heard. Everyone has to say their piece. I've used this illustration before as sort of the, the, uh, the me focusedness of our time. So every year, Time Magazine picks a person of the year. You're familiar with that, right? They have a person of the year. And and the way the magazine words it is it says, for better or for worse, this person has done the most to influence the events of the year, okay? And so sometimes it'll be, 
it'll be a Barack Obama or a George Bush. And sometimes it'll be a, you know, a Putin or Osama bin Laden or somebody like that. Just depends on whoever's been the most influential. Well, in the year 2006, the winner of the person of the year by Time Magazine was you. It was you. The cover of the magazine had a computer screen with a silver reflective cover. And you would look at the magazine and it said, person of the year, you. And you had a little mirror right there that you could look into your face. And the, the idea there, the point of it saying that was this. It was saying that was about the time that all this online user content was starting to explode. Not only blogs and things like that, but wiki documents and things like that, things that people are coming in and editing and adding their knowledge to. YouTube was beginning to explode at that point. People were putting their own content on. And basically, Time Magazine said, you know who the most important person in the world is? It's you. Your voice getting out there. That's the thing that's most important. That's the thing that is changing the world. David, despite his resolve to say nothing, Man, it's burning him up inside, right? He's got to say something. I think we probably, if you've got a Facebook account, you know how that feels, right? You know what it feels like to be burning to speak out. And so here's the thing, and it would be to say this. There are obviously many times where we do need to speak up, okay? There are many times where our voice needs to be heard. Situations of abuse that we've talked about in in recent weeks, right? You, you have to speak out in those circumstances. But I think we also realize that there are many, many circumstances in which we just need to be quiet. Our adding our two cents, adding our complaint, adding our self-justifications is not going to accomplish anything. And there's no hard and fast rules here, right? Like there's no computer that you can feed the situation through and get an answer. But here's one thing that I do for my own heart, and it's this. If I'm speaking from anger, I usually say I should probably not say anything. But if I'm not speaking, I'm being silent because of fear, then I'm a little more drawn to say, man, I should say something. Okay. Now, again, does that work every single time? It doesn't. That won't fix every single situation. But it might point to our motives a little bit. Are we trying to do something that is right against the odds, or are we trying to just... Um, be self-righteous and, and, and run our mouths about things, okay? But here's the thing. And again, depending on which way we look at this passage, that may be true. The idea that we should sometimes be silent, that may be true about your relationship with God too. Which is a strange thing to say, I think, for many years. There may be times where you need to keep your mouth shut in terms of what you say to God. So here's the deal. God is always ready to hear your prayers. We can be honest with God about our pain, about our hurt, about our disappointment, about our doubt. There's no question that that is the case. But when we go to the word of God, we also need to be careful that our honesty to God does not turn into complaint, to accusation to grumbling before God. Because here's the reality. It doesn't take you long reading the Bible to see that God hates those things, okay? He hates our grumbling. As a parent, I welcome my child's honest problems. 
right? I want them to talk to me. I want them to be honest with me. I want to, I want them to come and, and, and share with me, um, what's going on. I want honest emotion, but here's the deal. I could care less about their complaints. Okay. Um, not interested in it. You can keep the complaints to yourself. Okay. Um, there's something of that with our relationship with God. We need to be careful of our mouths is what I'm saying. Listen to the way James 3 says it. Man, these are hot words, okay? These are searing words if we will take them as speaking to us personally. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, set on fire the entire course of our lives, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And those aren't like light words, guys. Like that's not something that he's just sort of like, ah, you know, sometimes we run our mouths too much, right? Your tongue is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. So we need to be careful. David is trying to be careful with his words, and yet it boils forth from him. Now, the second section we look at is, is pretty much by every interpreter's understanding, the content of what David then says. David can't help but speak, and then at least part of what he says is what we find in the next section. And again, we come to a fork in the road. We can look at it two different ways. Is the things that he says in verses 4 through 6 a humble self-aware address to God? Or is it more akin to basically what Job does in the first 30 chapters of Job? Is it half self-righteous complaint and half fatalistic despair? So let me show you what I mean. Verse four, oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And a lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Again, there's nuance in this passage. Certain Hebrew words have different meaning. The phrases can take on different uh, tones. Um, we make assumptions about the earlier parts of the text, and then those influence the way we see here. But here's the deal. Think about this. When he asks to know the measure of his days, is he saying, tell me how much longer I have to suffer? Tell me how much longer I have to live and live in this suffering? Or is he saying, let me understand how fleeting my life is so I can handle it wisely? Because here's the deal. If you go back and read that thing, thinking to yourself, he is speaking in the tone of fatalistic, depressed, accusation towards God, it looks a certain way. And if you say, no, I think he's just trying, like he's coming to grips with the reality of, of our brokenness, then it looks a completely different way. And the reality is, is that people disagree about which one he is saying. Is it when he says, you have made my days a few handbreadths, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Here's the question. Is that a realization he has come to? Or is that an accusation towards God? 
on one level, nothing he says is wrong, right? He's right about all those insights that he makes about the fragility and the finiteness of our lives. Those truths are attested to in other places in Scripture. But here's the danger, or one of the dangers, of seeing something that is true, but maybe seeing it through a lens of despair. David is basically saying, is, is, is he saying, I'm all worked up and there's no hope and everything is meaningless and there's no point in all this? Or is he saying, man, I'm all worked up, but you know what? Life's too short to worry about this kind of stuff. And so I need to quiet my soul and not worry about the fact that I'm having to deal with this time of persecution. The questions just keep on rolling, again, depending on which way we're going. Look at verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. That seems like it's about David's sin. Do not make the, uh, do not make me the scorn of the fool. Eh, that makes it sound like the problem is the guy out here. Like the person he's speaking against is the persecutor. Verse nine, I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. Who's the you? It's God. He's saying, God, you're the one who is allowing this or causing this suffering in my life. So again, is, is, David's saying, God, you have allowed this persecution by the wicked, and therefore I'm at peace with your sovereignty. If that's the decision that you have made to allow me to go through these, then I'm at peace with that. Or is he basically saying, God is inflicting punishment on me for my grumbling, and therefore I have come to peace with the right discipline of God. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Again, we see that he sees the things that are going on as ultimately a function of God's sovereignty or of God's judgment on him. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So here, David calls out for mercy. He says, remove your stroke from me, God. Stop. It says you have spent, I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Okay. So again, whether he sees this as judgment or he sees it as God's providence in his life, something he's allowing him to go through, he sees it as coming from God. And again, we have to ask ourselves, is it mercy or is it uh, mercy for God's judgment or for his providence? If it's judgment, then David is again admitting his own sinful response to the situation and confessing that and asking for mercy and forgiveness. But if he's recognizing God's providence, he is asking that God would bless him by altering the circumstances. He's saying, I realize that in your sovereignty, God, you've allowed me to get into this situation where I'm suffering, but I'm asking that you get me out of it now, right? That you would remove these things from him. Both of those, I think, are prayers that any of us would pray all the time in our lives. Acknowledging that God allows us to go through hard times sometimes, even in our perspective, harsh times, right? There are some times where we just look to God and say, man, I I feel like, it feels like you've got your thumb on me right now, God. I remember talking about Jonathan Edwards earlier. Jonathan Edwards, ah, this is just a random thought that that popped up, but uh, Jonathan Edwards had lived most of his he lived in the mid-1700s. Um, the people in his community were jealous and resentful of the fact that Jonathan Edwards' family had been basically healthy the whole time. They had, had not had any uh, children die in infancy. They'd not had anybody, you know, young children die or anything. They had just been a healthy and seemingly blessed family. 
And, and there's, there's records of like the people in town basically going, man, we kind of resent that because everybody else has had to deal with the children's deaths in our community. Seems unfair that Jonathan Edwards and his family would be so blessed. And then within the course of about, I can't remember if it's like two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, three people, two of his daughters and Jonathan Edwards himself all died. Um, and his wife writes a letter to one of the other daughters and says, God's providence has been particularly harsh on us in the last few weeks, right? These were, this was a godly woman, but still in her own estimation, she was like, God's obviously in control of all these things. And yet it feels like in this moment, he's being particularly harsh to us. Why has he let these things happen? David seems to be in some sort of similar situation, whether he sees the cause of that difficulty coming from the outside or from his own sin, whether he sees it, the providence of God or the judgment of God. But he says this in verse 12, hear my prayer, Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. And he says this, it's an odd phrase for the Bible. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Right. And that's a weird thing for the Bible to say. David is saying, God, just please, like, look the other way. Stop paying attention to me for a minute so I can have some peace and die. That final section, again, the way we read it is influenced by how we see the whole situation. Is David under God's judgment? Then the prayer is that God would turn away from David. But that would be to say to remove his judgment from it. To add another layer to it, the, the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, when he comments on this passage, he says, yeah, the problem with that line at the end is that it's completely unbiblical. It's unrighteous. David is expressing a thought of his own heart, but it is a bad and sinful thought. Okay. So then we ask that question. Now we've added a whole third element into this thing, okay? It's not just what the situation is, but is he responding to the situation in a right way? It's a strong and hard ending to a song, right? That's a rough ending. And David feels as though he cannot bear the suffering that he is under any longer, whether it is providence or judgment. And see, here's part of the thing that we're getting at as we look at this passage. This is part of the power and the beauty of the Psalms is that sometimes we read the Psalms and they are brutally honest. They are full of the whole range of human emotion. The spectrum that broken people living in a broken world find their thoughts and lives and emotions and and they're calling out to God, all of that is balanced in the Psalms. Now, here's the deal. I know I said at the beginning that it is somewhat illegitimate to assign this passage to a certain story in the life of David, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Uh, and we might be incorrect in it, but it, it gives us a picture, okay? Because I think when we notice a certain story in David's life, all these ideas, at the very least, we can say this. Even if he didn't write it then, the same sort of complexities are all there in this story. And those, that's the story that we find in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. You don't have to turn there because we're not just going to read it straight through. I'm going to kind of summarize it. Um, but it's the story of David's son, Absalom's rebellion. 
So if you remember the story, David has a son named Absalom. Um, but maybe what's more important about Absalom is not that he's David's son, but that he is Tamar's uh, brother. Tamar and, and Absalom are full brother and sister, and they have another half-brother named Amnon. And Amnon is incestuously attracted to his sister, forces himself on her, violates her, and then abandons her. And as you would expect, Absalom is enraged by this. And David, while angry about the sin, a sin that would require death among pretty much anybody else, David doesn't do anything about it, really. In the end, that forces, or not forces, but, but motivates Absalom to take revenge. And he lures his brother out to a meal, murders him, and then that leads to his own exile, um, his division and, and, and a split between him and his father. And then eventually to him raising support for a coup that would overthrow King David. So at a certain point in the story, David and his officials realize that the tide of public opinion seems to be moving against King David. And he says, I think it's wise for us to make a strategic retreat from, from the capital of Jerusalem. And so as they are leaving the city, the Bible tells us that as they are crossing the Mount of Olives, which is a cool detail, I'm not sure that it has anything to do, but it's interesting that at this moment when they're crossing the Mount of Olives, the thing that we remember most about the Mount of Olives is, is probably the Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the emotional, spiritual turmoil that happened in that thing too. I'm not sure they have anything to do with each other, but it's interesting. As they are crossing the Mount of Olives, a bystander, a member of the clan of King Saul, who David succeeded, watches the party pass and he's hurling insults. He's hurling stones at David's entourage as they retreat and flee from the city. And he says, screams out to David as they come by, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. One of David's soldiers, as you might expect, says, who does this guy think he is? Let me go up there and chop his head off. But David responds to the soldier this way. He says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who are we to say, why do you do this? And then he pauses and he says this, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more this man? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do it. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me this covenant blessing instead of this curse that I have today. Okay? So here's the deal. In that moment, David is experiencing, at least we might say, perhaps some of the confusion that we're experiencing when we come to this psalm. There are these conflicting sides of it and conflicting emotions that he is dealing with. He's coming to the realization that his greatest enemy on this earth at this time is a person who he greatly loves. Imagine for a second what it would be like to to suffer under the the persecution at the hands of, of someone who is acting in a wicked way and yet not being able to escape the idea 
that the things that are happening are at least in some way a consequence of your own sin. That you are receiving the rebukes and hateful accusations of those around you, but at the same time, it's hard to respond to them because it may be that those are actually ultimately a rebuke from the Lord. That moment when you recognize that your son is seeking to kill you and the angry words of some random bystander seem pretty insignificant at that point, even if in your throne room they would be considered treasonous. The fragility, the finiteness of our life seems to cave in on us, right? And it's pretty obvious at that point that a lot of these things don't really matter compared to the larger things that are going on in our lives. Now, again, I don't know that David was writing this psalm for this circumstance, but man, there sure seems to be a lot of overlap. We realize, I think, that this, what the psalmist realized, what David realizes as he writes it, that whatever the situation in this passage is, and this is the key to the whole thing, I think, is that at a level, regardless of the situation, the rescue from the suffering is still going to be coming from the same place. In either case, God is the source of our mercy, and God is the source of our rescue. We skipped over it, and you probably noticed that we did. Verse 7 is, I think, the hinge of the whole passage. Because David says something that is central and true, and, and whether whichever situation we think is going on here, it's the thing that brings all of it together. He says, and now, O Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. If there is going to be a rescue from this thing, God, it's only going to come from you. We have one hope in this world, and that is God. And maybe the realization is is that next to our relationship with him, next to the predicament that we find ourselves in because of our sin, man, everything else falls into the background. All the other issues of our lives, if that first and central issue is not dealt with, if we do not know Jesus Christ personally, if we have not been reconciled to God, then, man, the the biggest things in the world are are meaningless, right? They're a hand's breadth, right? We look at our life and we go, man, it was over like that, um, and a bunch of stuff happened, but I never dealt with the main thing. I never dealt with the thing that was most important. David knows that his only recourse, however we see this passage, is to call out to God from a position of repentance. So what do we do? What is the unifying theme, not only of this passage, but of every passage, of our entire lives? How do we live? What do we do? We turn to God and we confess our sins. We say, God, remove our transgression from us. We call out to God for mercy. Yeah, it's something that I think we miss. There's, there's, uh, you know, the phrase, it was a Mr. Mr. song, and that makes it kind of goofy. Um, but, but, you know, the Kyrie Eliaison, right? Lord have mercy on us. It's part of the, the Latin liturgy, right? It, it's a phrase that's said over and over again. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Um, it's said repeatedly throughout the service. Why? Because there is a recognition in in the Catholic liturgy that you know what we need more than anything from God? We need his mercy. 
right? We need to him to look to us with mercy, not with all the things that we see here, not with judgment, not with condemnation for our sin, not with um, suffering because of the, 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 the goofy, sinful, destructive actions that we've had in our lives. No, we call out to God all the time, say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on my life. Have mercy on my marriage. Have mercy on my children. Have mercy on my work. Have mercy on my decisions. Have mercy on my giving. Have mercy on my church. Have mercy on my friendships. Have mercy on the people who have walked away from the faith that I care about. Have mercy on the people who are still in the faith and we are clinging together and trying to to stay the course, right? Have mercy on us. That's what David is hoping in. He's saying, I have nothing else to hope for except that God would work. Only hoping in Jesus Christ. Only hoping in the salvation that God has provided. What I want to do is go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And again, this is one of those passages that I don't know that it's a, uh, or, or at least the way I preach it, I don't know that it's like a decision kind of moment, right? It's not like you probably say, you know what, I wasn't hoping before, but now I'm going to start hoping right now. That's probably not the way it's going to hit you. But what I hope is the case is this. Man, you're going to hit, you're going to hit a suffering like this at some point. You may already be in the middle of a suffering like this, and you're going to look to God in in either of these cases. You're going to look to God and say, man, why are you doing this to me, God? My life is so short already. Why am I having to deal with this difficult stuff in the midst of this? Or you might look to him and say, my life is so fleeting, Lord. Please help me to, man, recognize the futility of, of the stuff going on in my life and, 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 and persevere and seek peace in you. I don't know which one that is, but, but it's coming. And the reality is, is the Bible calls us to what? To hope in Jesus. You look to the world around you, you say, man, this place is a mess. I don't know what we're going to do. It's falling apart. Um, I don't like the way it's the direction it's heading. I don't, I don't know what to do, God. What are we going to do? The answer is we hope in Jesus. You've got a, a wayward family member, a person in your family who has, who has walked away from the faith or maybe was never in the faith. Um, someone who has, has sought, um, the things of the world and you say, God, I don't know what to do. I've said everything I know how to say. Um, I've, I've, reached out in every way I know how to. I continue to love, but I just don't know what I'm going to do. And the answer is, we hope in God. In all things, we turn to God in hope. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, and maybe just ask, uh, you may have other things on your heart already that you're saying, no, I need to address this in a specific way in my life. But at the very least, let's say this, that we would hold on to these things knowing that the suffering's coming. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the source of it will be. I don't know if it will be the providence of God or it will be judgment for our own sins or if it'll just be the wickedness of, of the world around us. But suffering's coming. So let's be ready to hope in God at all times, particularly then. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we look at this passage and we see um, your servant, David. God, he, he, in the passage, seems to be at loose ends. God, he is bearing up under a suffering, the source of which we are unclear about. And yet we know that all things are within your providence. All things are within your sovereignty. 
God, we recognize that if David can go through these things and suffer in his spirit the way he did, God, that we can as well. And so we ask that you would give us the hope of Jesus Christ. God, we would know that at the end of the day that we can trust you because you are a good and faithful God. Even if you allow us to go through difficult times, through through temporal suffering, God, um, that you are good and gracious. God, that you work all things together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. God, that you have not forgotten about any of us. That you are working. and That you are growing. That you are nurturing. That you are building your people. God, help us to rest God, yes, in your sovereignty, but God, that we would rest in your great love for us and the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ that we have. God, that is not easy. God, it will bring us to the breaking point as it seems to have brought David to the breaking point. And yet we ask that in the end uh, that we would be found faithful. We thank you, God. We praise you. We ask these things to be accomplished by the power of your spirit in our lives. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Two statements in the closing song. Jesus Christ.
Amen. Um, you know, I, I know there's a heavy kind of psalm, right? And I think a lot of the psalms are heavy, but um, part of the reason why, again, I, we go to them is because we recognize that there's a whole swath of Christianity uh, that just sort of says like, happy, happy, joy, joy, like all of the time, right? Um, and obviously we have incredible happiness and incredible joy in Jesus Christ, right? That hope that we are talking about makes us joyful, that hope changes our perspective on the ultimate end of things. But that is not to say that we don't go through a whole lot of difficulty, some of our own making and some because of the circumstances of a fallen world as we walk this path of joy following Jesus Christ, okay? And that's what I love. One of the things I love about the Psalms is it's they're honest about those things, okay? They're honest about those feelings that we have um, and, and the trials of life. So um, hope it wasn't too heavy on you. Um, hope there's 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 hope at the end of it. And um, looking forward to hearing James next week uh, as as he shares with us from from Psalm 34. But um, have a great evening. Um, hope you have a good week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. We'll see you next week.